Welcome to Media Tribe. I'm Shauna Kinnear, and this is the podcast that tells the story behind the story. It's an opportunity for you and I to step into the shoes of the most extraordinary media folk who cover the issues that matter most. He turns to my producer, who is like get grabbing the last piece of gear, and he says, you know, I should really leave you here with a shotgun, but I don't have one with me. So if you see a polar bear, run. My guest today is Arielle Duem Ross, the host of Reset, a very cool technology and science podcast from Vox Media. Before that, Arielle was the first climate correspondent on American TV news on Emmy Award winning HBO Vice News Tonight, where she did some really important reporting on the politics of climate change and the effect that global warming is having on communities worldwide. Arielle, thank you so much for, for joining me on my podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. You are currently in Brooklyn, is that right? Yes, uh, yeah, I am in Brooklyn. I am also currently in my tiny apartment in Brooklyn in my bedroom closet recording this. Uh, yeah, I love it. Well, we have that in common already. I'm also in my uh, bedroom wardrobe in the East Village, um, so we're only a few miles away. <laughs> so, Ariel, you have had a really, really interesting career to date. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit about that, how you ended up as the host of a, an amazing podcast, a tech podcast oh, on Vox. Yeah. Um, so I didn't necessarily set out to be a journalist at all. That was not part of my plan growing up. I think uh, this is actually a story that a lot of science journalists tell. You know, it, we always, many of us seem to follow a similar path, which is that we fell in love with science. We thought that that meant that we had to be scientists. And so you do that for a while and you figure out that maybe your attention span isn't suited to it or maybe, you know, you're just not as detail oriented as a scientist needs to be. And so but you still love communicating it. You love talking about science. So you go into science journalism. So that's basically what happened with me. I was studying zoology because I wanted to be a herpetologist. I wanted to study reptiles. And um, during my last year of undergrad, I was listening to a lot of science podcasts and I realized that somebody was writing what I was hearing. I, you know, it sounds very basic when I say it now, but there is a sort of a light bulb moment where you're like, people are just spewing things. They're like, this has been written. And so I went home and I Googled science journalism on a lark thinking I had invented the term. And all of these programs popped up, uh, including NYU's program. And uh, I ended up the next year doing my master's in science, health and environmental reporting at NYU. And it was it was like a life changing moment. It was great. So I, I completed my master's. And during that time, I also did three internships at Quartz and at Scientific American and at Nature Medicine the scientific journal. And so I did well enough that I got hired uh, right out of school uh, for The Verge. I was a science reporter there for two and a half years. And Katie Drummond, who is now very high up um, at Vice, is uh, was the person who hired me there. And that worked out really well for me. And from there, I ended up uh, working for Vice News Tonight on HBO, uh, which is a now canceled but was very good <laughs> a documentary style news TV show. And I was a climate change correspondent for Vice News. Really, really worth noting that you are America's first ever climate change correspondent. Yeah, we had the first climate desk in nightly news TV show. And that meant, as my title also, I was the first person to hold that title. I, there's nobody else in TV that had that title at the time, and I think maybe still today. Um, 
don't get me wrong, there have been journalists on TV that have been doing climate change reporting. But of course. that title in and of itself meant something. It meant that Vice was taking climate change seriously enough and saying, you know what, we're going to have a dedicated desk where we're going to have a bunch of people who know what they're talking about, who do this all the time. And we're going to make sure that it is a a pillar in our coverage. And I think that that was actually pretty significant. I mean, it was really forward thinking. And, and was that Vice or was that you? Did you pitch that to them and say, hey, I actually know what I'm talking about? Right. I wish I could take credit for that, but that is absolutely 100 <laughs> percent. Uh, Madeline Herringer and Josh Tarangiel, they were the showrunners for Vice News Tonight. And they decided really, really early on before they brought me on that climate change was going to be a pillar of the show. Um, and I very much want them to have all of that credit because I, I think it was really innovative. It really was. And so from Vice slash HBO, you went to Vox? Yeah. So The the Verge, the website that I mentioned as being the first place that I worked for, what is still today a Vox Media website. It covers technology um, and also has a robust science coverage uh, part of the website. And so basically what I did was work at Vox, go to Vice, and then go back to Vox Media. And now I am the host of Reset, which is a podcast about technology and science for Vox.com. Amazing. So they, you're actually my first interviewee who has a podcast. So this mm. is awesome. So I, I'm already listening to the crisp, beautiful audio on the other end. This is just <laughs> going to be so easy for me. Usually we have, you know, dogs barking and, you know, oh, um, hair you might still against. end up hearing my dog Reggie barking. She's currently sleeping on the bed that is right outside the closet. Um, and as long as no other neighbor does anything, we're good. But otherwise, she will 100% bark. And that is just the way that it is. So would it be accurate to say what you do is tell human stories through a tech lens? Yeah, I mean, I think that is how we've been talking about Reset. And it's it's funny, just this week, somebody was recommending Reset on Twitter and tagged me in the tweet. And they described the podcast that I host as a podcast that talks a lot about the clash between technology and different aspects of human life. And whether it's culture or politics, ethics, what have you. And I thought that that was a really, really good way of describing Reset. And I think that I might steal that. Um, so to that listener, thank you so much. I am definitely going to use that because I very much think that while I love technology and while we do celebrate technology in various aspects of the show, I also take a pretty critical lens. And I think that that is part of my personality. It's part of who I am. And I think that that's really, really important when you talk about technology today. And so that is maybe my new way of talking about the show. But we try and tell really human stories, maybe not the kind that you would typically hear as part of a tech podcast. Um, and I, I take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. And I mean, that's exactly what makes you stand out as well. Is there a sense or maybe a, is it a goal of yours to really change mindsets. Yeah, I mean, I covered I covered climate change for three years. I don't know if as a climate change correspondent, my goal was to necessarily change people's minds. I think it was to open people's eyes, which is slightly different. I think that it is very, very hard to convince an audience that is um, determined to ignore climate change or determined to say um, that scientists are wrong. To, it's very hard to change their minds. But if you can put certain images in front of their eyeballs um, every week, I do think that, that it sort of chips away slowly. And, and I don't think that that is the case always, but I, I think it, it can help. Now with Reset, I think that that is 
I think that is the case. I don't know. Again, I don't think it's necessarily changing minds, but I think it's opening people's horizons, opening their eyes, making them think of people who are very different from themselves. That's particularly important for me. I think that there have been a lot of instances where we have covered a certain policy by a tech company and covered it from the angle coming from the standpoint of maybe a marginalized community. And that I think is really important. I think people tend to, you know, they think about the familiar, they think about their particular use case. And my goal is for people to think about many different types of use cases. Yeah, well, that's so interesting. It, it, and, and that's what has struck me about your all of your reporting, that you do use people. And I guess, you know, you use empathy as a tool while reporting tech and science and climate change. Like that's that's quite different. That's not what's usually done. It's usually kind of hard, cold facts that often, you know, don't move people. But you're doing the opposite. Yeah. And maybe that actually comes from the documentary show that I was a part of for a while. I found it really effective to be able to show people very intimate stories and the way that Vice News tells these stories is actually by removing the correspondent as much as possible from these stories. And and I think that that was, a, that was actually very effective. Now, I don't think that, that Reset does that. I think that we try and, um, as a host, to have me be, you know, part of, not necessarily part of the stories, but, but active and to have opinions, right? So I, I'm a little bit more vocal than I have been in the past in my journalism. But I do think that it really helps people to hear different people's journeys and to to just have an intimate moment with them. Intimacy, actually, I do think can change people's minds. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And what, what's it's kind of raised another point um, in your career trajectory. You know, you have experienced some hostility. Mm-hmm. I think I either read it or listened to it on another podcast. And, and obviously, um, Ariel, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have received death threats mm-hmm. and rape threats and it's worth noting so you're you're not just obviously a woman um reporting on climate change which is difficult enough but you're a woman of color and you identify as queer yeah yeah i'm i'm a black woman of you know i'm i'm a black woman i'm queer i um th- those things are all things that uh can you know cause a certain level of hostility and you know i don't know if the 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 spare the specific instances where i've received these death threats and rape threats were on Twitter. Um, And it's always hard to know how serious to take these things. But when you're first encountering these kinds of direct messages on social media, it's really, really startling and it's really, really hard. And there was a period during my career when I was at The Verge, the Vox Media website that I mentioned, where I was getting these messages regularly, multiple times a day, because of some coverage that I'd done um, about a, a scientist at NASA who wore a shirt that was sexist. And we, myself and a number of other science journalists for various websites had, had covered this issue. And we were all harassed for months. Um, some far got it far worse than I did, uh, but it, it, it was bad. And I think that that really, really had an impact on me for a long period of time. I very much turned inwards. I uh, was protecting myself, protecting my family, trying to make sure that I wouldn't get doxxed. Um, not that you can really <laughs> ever make sure that you're not going to get doxxed, but doing everything I can to make sure that my personal information was not put out on the Internet. And it, it was a moment of, of, of fear for a while, for sure. 
recently-ish, you had your father on your podcast. So you're obviously past that now. You're kind of willing to <laughs> rope them in and uh, get them to do some of the hard slots. Yeah, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit more willing to open up my life to listeners than I have been in the past. And I think, I think I'm trying to do it gradually. I'm trying to feel out my comfort level with that. But yeah, my, my father, um, we had been doing this thing with Reset where we were asking our listeners, um, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, various questions about how things were going for them, some of them having to do with technology. And my father, completely of his own volition, decided to answer one of those questions and sent us some audio. Um, and so we included him in, in the podcast. And I think I think people got a kick out of that because he's got this great <laughs> Trinidadian accent um, and he's very scholarly in the way that he talks. And it was it was just uh, I think it was kind of adorable, honestly. That's awesome. Next question, big question. Is there a moment in your career so far that you could kind of pinpoint as being something quite special, something that you're very proud of, or maybe it had tangible impact? I mean, I think I would point to a, a particular story that I wrote that I'm very proud of. I'm. I think it's it's. I would like to think that it had an impact. I think it's always hard to measure the impact of a single story, but. I think it raised a lot of awareness, and and I do think that it sort of embarrassed uh, the Department of Health in Alabama, so I'm very proud of that. Um, But it was a story about uh, an issue of of hookworm in Alabama. So I wrote this for Vice News in 2018. Um, We also had a segment about this on the the HBO show Vice News Tonight, but I wrote a a long feature um, that had a lot more context, and I was really proud of that story. It tells the story of a study that was conducted in Alabama by a scientist named Rogelio Mejia, and at the request of a woman from Alabama named Catherine Flowers, he had come to Alabama to sort of investigate the issue because she thought that there might be a parasite problem in Alabama. And the reason why she thought that is because there is a, a very large problem of raw sewage in Alabama, especially in areas where black and brown communities reside, which tend to also be poor communities. Um, basically, the, the sewage system in Alabama is very much in cities. And then there's rural sewage, which is uh, largely septic tanks. And the soil in Alabama is very clay-like. It does not absorb water very well. And so you need very special septic tanks that are extremely expensive. And so um, people don't necessarily have the money to buy those special septic tanks, those special septic tanks, and they fail. Um, And so there is raw sewage on the soil and people's lawns everywhere. And there's also an issue where some people don't even have a tank. And so instead they use something called straight piping, where they will just funnel a pipe from the bathroom to, you know, a few feet away from the home. And then the the raw sewage will just uh, end up on on a lawn somewhere in a wooded area. Um, And that has caused an issue of parasites. And The reason why hookworm was so significant is because for a long time, hookworm has been thought to have been eradicated in the U.S. John D. Rockefeller, at the beginning of the 20th century, had this five-year-long campaign to try to eradicate hookworm. And at the end of it, he said, you know, we did it. We did a great job. But that probably isn't at all accurate. Basically, he just took off. He ended the campaign. And while it did probably have an impact, hookworm stuck around, and there's evidence of it in the 1950s, in the 1970s, and even in the 1990s. But because of this campaign by Rockefeller, uh, health officials and doctors stopped testing for hookworm. 
there was just like it was common knowledge that hookworm is no longer there. And so when Rogelio Mejia came to Alabama, specifically to Lowndes County in Alabama, at the request of Catherine Flowers, he tested the blood of a number of individuals and found that, yes, in fact, uh, they, they did have um, hookworm. Um, it was in low levels, but still detectable uh, through a DNA-based test called uh, a qPCR test. And then when they published the results, the Alabama Department of Health said that it was wrong, that there was, in fact, no hookworm there. They completely contested it. Um, and so I went down there and I spent some time with Mejia doing a follow-up study. They were testing the soil and that the results of that study has haven't come out yet, or at least at the time that I wrote. They might have come out now, actually. I should probably look that up. Um, but at the time, the results had not come out. I really was there as he was doing this follow-up study um, looking into it. But I spent some time talking to you know the head of the Alabama Department of Health, and they explained to me why they thought the results were wrong. And I talked to a number of scientists who all told me it was almost certainly correct that um, Rogelio, Rogelio Mejia had used the most state-of-the-art test possible for this, while the Alabama Department of Health said that the test had not been um, approved by the FDA, which that kind of test doesn't need to be approved by the FDA. It was all very sketchy. Um, And so I called them out on it in a very lengthy article. And I also looked into the history of hookworm. And that's why I'm able to tell you about John D. Rockefeller. So can you explain to the audience how bad hookworm actually is? Right. So hookworm is is a very, it's a nasty parasite. So basically, um, the way that it propagates is that when people go to the bathroom, they will have eggs in their excrement. And if you have a bad sewage system, then those eggs will end up in the soil. And as people walk by, tiny little larvae will dig into a person's feet, go up their, use their blood vessel basically as a highway, their blood vessels as a highway, go up to the heart, bypass the heart, and then go into the lungs. And then the parasite will actually crawl up the trachea and get swallowed so that it ends up in people's intestines, um, intestines, as Americans would say. Um, and sorry, I'm still like I say a lot of things in a very Canadian way sometimes. Um, and so it, and then they will feed on people's blood and it's in the intestines that they uh, will mate and then the cycle starts all over again. And what it does is it causes it can cause anemia. Um, it can really be a big problem in, in children, uh, diarrhea. Basically, it, it makes you very sluggish um, and it can cause, you know, just you, you might have deficiencies because of it. I mean, it's very serious. So after you did your, you know, your subsequent reporting, what was the government's right of reply? like? Right. So I, I got comment from them. They, uh, I called them out on a number of things. They said that they were trying to do certain things. And when I checked up, so they said they had gotten funding Um, from the federal government for a specific program that would help people install septic tanks. When I actually called the federal government, they said, actually, they never completed the application and we never approved it. Um, So all of that was in the the article itself. In terms of impact, it's really hard to measure impact. I was definitely not the only person to have written an article about this. I think that I was the one who went the most in-depth at the time. My hope is that it made them sweat. Um, And I think that having a, a lot of times journalism, you know, we want to think that it's a hero story. We want to think that a single story has a a significant impact. I think actually most of the time it's having lots of people write about this from different perspectives. And then that puts pressure on the, the people in power. And my hope is that it had a significant impact and contributed to that. 
Well, it definitely sounds like it. Um, and I'm so happy we got to talk about excrement in my podcast. Oh, yeah. That's first for sure. So thank you. That's I mean, I'm a science journalist. If we don't talk about poop, that means I'm I'm failing. I love it. Well, next question, Ariel. Is there a moment in your career that has been utterly crazy that kind of never made it to air? I'm sure there's loads having worked at Mm -hmm. Vice and stuff that's happened on the road that you'd like to tell our audience about. Uh, I mean, there's one when you, you know, you you sent me this question in advance and I I thought about it and there's like only one story that really came to mind. Um, And this is something that, you know, wasn't part of the segment that we did on this. Um, I mean, we used the footage, but we didn't talk about what happened to get that footage. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so this was, uh, God, what year was this? I think this was 20, early 2019. Um, It might have been late 2018. I actually don't remember. But I I went to Greenland um, and we were covering a NASA research project where they are measuring ice melt in a really interesting way because it's actually they're measuring ice melt under the water not above water. And I think that, um, unfortunately, I think the way that we think about ice melt having to do with climate change is that we think about, you know, the sun hits the ice above water and that's where it's melting. Turns out it's melting in a much larger um, and much higher quantity under the water because of the way that ocean currents work. And so there's a lot of warm water deep below the surface and that is actually the biggest issue. And so these scientists were, that's what they were measuring. As part of that, we wanted to get beautiful beauty shots of glaciers. And so we had, um, or at least we thought we had booked a helicopter to go to Helheim Glacier in Greenland. And uh, we arrived at the airport and for whatever reason, I don't exactly remember what the screw up was or like what happened, what went wrong. I really don't know. But we didn't have a helicopter. And so last minute, we were trying to convince this pilot to take us to the glacier. We didn't have a lot of time. I think we were supposed to leave the next day. And we were trying to convince him. And he was like basically fully booked for the day. And so finally, he tells us, "Okay, so I can take you to this glacier, um, but I'm going to have to leave you there and then come back and get you. And, you know, we just really needed the shot. And so, you know, we kind of all looked at each other and we're like, "Uh, okay, I guess that's fine. Um, And so we take this beautiful ride on a helicopter. We're filming the whole time. It's great. We land on a sort of a rocky mountain next to the glacier. Nice. And uh, just as he, just as the pilot is leaving, he turns, I was, I did not overhear this, by the way, I was told this by my producer immediately afterwards but he turns to my producer who is like get grabbing the last piece of gear and he says you know i should really leave you here with a shotgun but i don't have one with me so if you see a polar bear run stop and then he takes off (laughs) and i I, honestly not nobody had anticipated the polar bear line or like you know it's there's nothing there it's beautiful there's a huge glacier that is you know you all you can see is glacier and then there's this rocky mountain face that has like some you know cute little like you know arctic plants it's very peaceful and beautiful and he just spews this line about a polar bear and <laughs> like i'm sorry what <laughs> and then he has to leave because he has to go take some other people on his helicopter who so he just leaves and he says i'll come back in an hour are you able to like get shelter anywhere? Is there like a, you no, know, a... there is there is nothing. I, and I'm looking around at this this mountain and going like, 
I guess I could run down, but I'm like, I, this is really dangerous. If like, I'm pretty sure a polar bear could outpace, no offense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I know that this polar bear can run in this mountain far faster than I ever could. And, you know, they tell you with a grizzly bear, like if you run down a mountain, like the the momentum will make the grizzly bear like fall. But I I don't know if that works with polar bears in the same way. (laughs) I don't think it does. I think I've actually Googled this recently. I'm just back from Pennsylvania. We were battling with other types of bears down there, but I've Googled it all. That does not work. Right. Exactly. And so I'm like, okay, um, please just I'm just hoping that this guy comes back at the time that he says he's going to come back. And while we're there, we, you know, I do a stand up in front of the glacier. Everything looks great. We like fly a drone because it's vice and we love drones. And um, and everybody like everything is and we're, we're, you know, we're we're safe on this mountain. Everything is fine. But then I, we have lunch. We have this pack lunch. Our hotel had made us these little sandwiches with smoked salmon and cream cheese in them, which was very nice of them. And I noticed that my senior producer is sitting next to me and he is like not finishing the sandwich. And he also has a little pile of rocks next to him. <laughs> and I, I think I asked him like, Ruben, what are you doing? And he proceeds to explain to me that he like if if there's a polar bear, he'll like throw the pieces of sandwich and like the rocks are also there. <laughs> and so it's just like it it was completely it was the most ridiculous thing I can think of. Um, fortunately, no polar bears showed up. The helicopter, I think, was 15 minutes late um, and we got home safely. But in just in that span of like an hour... I remember thinking, wow, we are super screwed if this bear shows up. Oh, my God. That is so funny. And I bet you, I'm sure you had loads of, um, you know, security protocol. Oh, yeah. You know, we have a sat phone. We are like, you know, we booked this helicopter last minute, but we know what we're doing. We're like careful about this. But for whatever reason, in our security protocol, polar bear did not show up on our radar at all. Oh, that's so funny. I could just imagine, and also, you know, Vice, you know, we can we can handle ISIS, we can handle the Taliban, but actually polar bears, yeah. not quite. <laughs> Nobody briefed me on polar bears. Oh, that is so funny. That's such a good story. It's so classic telly, isn't yes, it? That's why, extremely. that's nearly like, it's a big part of the reason why I, I've done this podcast, because there are so many mental, mental stories from behind the scenes that people just don't have any clue about what goes on like it's such a funny industry that stuff like this happens oh yeah I mean there's always going to be something unexpected nothing ever goes the way you think it is and you think it will and no matter how prepared you are you're going to miss something yeah um and that's part of part of the thrill and I will say I'm extremely risk averse I'm actually a total scaredy cat about most things but when it comes to trying to get the best story possible I do actually care about that quite a bit and that sometimes overrides this this extreme desire for safety and yes you sometimes you just miss things I know I can really relate to that that's such a it's such a good point I think I've been in the position so many times whereby I know I was doing something really really risky but the fear of not bringing back a sequence or a scene to the edit suite versus potentially being you know killed or being injured in some way is way less scary to me than being in an edit suite without. And then you, somebody turns to you and says, "Wait, you didn't get a beauty shot of a huge glacier? Like, what were you I thinking?" Know. It's like, well, it's so funny. Anyway, that's how mental our industry is, um, and that's exactly what uh, this podcast is about. Ariel, thank you so much for for joining me on my podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was this was really delightful. 
If you liked what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, tune in next week as I'll be dropping new shows every week with all sorts of legendary folk from the industry. And if you could leave me a review and rating, that would be really appreciated. Also, get in touch on social media at Shauna on Twitter or at Shauna Kinnear on Instagram and feel free to suggest new guests. Right, that's it. Until next week, see you then. This episode is edited by Ryan Ferguson. 